Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jim McNamara, sitting in for Patty Murphy. For those tuning in for the first time, I'm a firefighter with the MTNY and serve as a human performance advisor for Leadership Under Fire. I'm also the principal author of the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. I can share more about the journal and how to receive it at the end of the episode. Without further delay, let me introduce our guest. Bob Athanas recently retired after 37 years of service with the FDNY, 29 of which was in Rescue 3 in the Bronx. Bob grew up in Southbridge, Massachusetts and served as a paid firefighter there from 1976 to 1983. He moved to Brooklyn, New York in 1983 and served four years as an FDNY fire alarm dispatcher in the Brooklyn Central Office and later the Cato Unit. Bob was appointed as an FDNY firefighter in 1987. He transferred to Rescue 3 in February of 1991, where he would spend the next 29 years of his career. Bob also served as an adjunct instructor at the FDNY Fire Academy and the lead instructor for thermal imager training for many FDNY training programs. He also taught at the FDNY Special Operations Technical Rescue School and helped to develop the FDNY SOC Advanced Firefighter Rescue Training Program. Bob was also a member of the Urban Search and Rescue New York Task Force One. Bob is president of Safer Inc., a thermal imager training and consulting group that has been training firefighters on the safe application of thermal imagers since 1996. He has served as the chairman of the NFPA Technical Committee on Electronic Safety Equipment and had been instrumental in the development of standards on thermal imagers and fireground radio communications. Bob, you thank you for the time for uh, being with us here today. Thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. It's, it's a pleasure. And before we begin, I have to take a moment and just congratulate you on an absolutely extraordinary career in the FDNY. 37 total years of service to the department, 29 of them in Rescue 3, which covers Harlem at Washington Heights. 29 years in Rescue 3, Bob. I'm assuming you're the uh, the all-time senior man in uh, Rescue 3? Uh, no. No, I'm. Uh, I, I was a close second. Uh, the senior man actually retired with a couple of years uh, more than 29. I think it was like 31. And had I stayed to 65, I still wouldn't have been able to have accomplished that. So I think it was more important that I left the job on uh, on my terms. I always say there's three ways to leave this job, and and I got the best option. It was on my terms. So either way, I wouldn't have been the I wouldn't have been the senior man, the number one guy. And what was the key to your longevity in Rescue Three, Bob? I guess love for the job focus and a lot of good luck, good fortune. I frequently question, as does uh, Mickey Conboy, who I worked with for a long time. We, we talked to each other a lot about you know where we worked and, and the places we worked and for the time that we were able to work and, and avoid serious injury. You know, we, we both had stitches. I had burns and stitches and stuff. But, uh, you know, as far as serious, serious injuries or disabling injuries on the job, uh, I was just very fortunate. You know, I mean, fate has a lot to do with everything that we do. And, and, you know, I think that's something that we all have to accept. I've come to appreciate the cliche as I've gotten older that I'd rather be lucky than good at this point or at that point in my career when I finally retired. <laughs> that's great. Bob, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and the kind of upbringing you had? Yeah, sure. I was uh, born and raised in a small town about 20,000 people in uh, Massachusetts, Southbridge, Massachusetts. I was born and raised there. I was kind of like, I would say almost an only child because I had a, a sister that was 16 years older than me and a, and a brother that was 12 years older than me. So 
you can kind of figure that out. My dad uh, was a very successful uh, business owner, and uh, my mom, uh, you know, was was a housekeeper. My dad, however, uh, I, I will mention this. Uh, I'm, I'm very blessed. My whole family is very blessed, and as much as that, my uh, my dad is. Uh, still alive and well. I talk to him two or three times a day, especially now since I'm retired at 105. He turned 105 wow. at Christmas. So uh, I think there's a little bit of longevity on, on that portion of my family. That's fantastic. Bob, what prompted you to become involved in the fire service? I think it was just one of those things that all boys go through, you know, certainly in my generation, you know, you, you thought about astronauts and pilots and milkmen and mailmen and policemen and firemen. And it just kept coming back to the fire department. My sister being older than I was married, and at the time, the landlord of her three-decker, which is a three-story frame up in Massachusetts or in New England, he was a fireman. And I just kind of took a liking to him, and, and he allowed me when I was very young to come by the fire station and, and, and see what they do, and, and it, it, really, it really cultivated my interest. After that, I just decided that's what I wanted. By the time I was 19, I was appointed against my father's wishes to uh, to the paid fire department there in Southbridge, and I was able to work there for seven years, but I always wanted more. And uh, ultimately, at the time in, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, uh, they were going through some some hiring issues back in the in the late 70s that prohibited me from getting hired there. But all the guys that I knew in Boston told me to, you know, go to New York. So I did, and you know the rest is history. I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know I couldn't have written a better script as far as my career. That's great. When you got on the job here in the FDNY in the '80s, Bob, can you describe what the job was like back then? Well, in in my mind, the job is all about fire, and that's 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 our title. That's what we're hired as as firefighters, and it was certainly the remnants of a lot of fires still in the 80s. Um, although I thought that I kind of missed it as I look back at those years now, we certainly did our share. I was very fortunate. I, I got appointed to uh, Engine 217 in, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, a single engine company. We did a lot of work and I had an opportunity to work with a lot of senior guys. And at the time, 217 was in the 5-7 battalion and all your, your details and your overtime were all within companies of the battalion at the time. And, and uh, so it was 230, 235, 214, 111, rescue two. You couldn't have a bad detail. There was a lot of fires and, you know, we had a lot of fun and it was an unbelievable opportunity to learn. And who were some of the, the guys that you looked up to in those early years? That's a tough question for me to answer because I did spend a lot of years in Boston in a lot of the busier places and just being around those guys, because back in the, the 70s, Boston had a tremendous amount of fires. I was able to, to meet some people and, and gravitate to firehouses where I could I could hang out and learn and watch. I learned from a lot of seasoned guys in busy companies in Boston. And those were the guys that ultimately told me to come to New York. And then once I came to New York, I was just hanging on everybody's word. I mean, uh, I had officers in 217, you know, the captain was, uh, was Flip Klein, you know, old school engine boss, Brian Sullivan, old school engine boss, uh, you know, Kevin Munley. Uh, these guys had just been to a tremendous amount of fires. And when I say old school engine boss, I mean, these guys were, were dedicated engine officers. In my mind, at least at that time, nothing phased these guys. 
I mean, I, I remember specifically at one fire where, you know, I had the nozzle, we were waiting for water and, and the captain Flip Klein just said to me, Hey, did you see the Yankee game last night? <laughs> and it was just like one of those things just to bring you down a little bit, you know, that, that really, uh, just had that calming effect on you. And, and like I say, Brian Sullivan, you know, he had been a fireman in 85 engine in the Bronx and now he's a Lieutenant in 217. And he just, I mean, there were just so many guys in the job at that time that had really gone through the war years that, you know, if, if you weren't hanging on their words and, and picking their brains and paying attention to what they do and how they're carrying themselves, then you know what, you were missing something. Sure. And it's great that you mentioned that story about, uh, about the Gulf calming you down. What's amazing with the fire department's MPI initiative, and the more that we learn, and again, from an academic setting, from sports and the military, the more it comes back to reflect on those great ones in an even more positive light. I mean, just that little, that little joke there to reset you, to, to bring you back down and to, and to get you to focus. It's incredible how far ahead the great ones really were. Did they offer yeah. any other advice as we could compare it to our current initiative? I think the thing that, that sticks out in my mind that I always tried, I always aspired to reach a level that I tried to reach with these guys is they became very competent at their trade. And it was through repetition. They went to a lot of fires and, and they had their act down pat, if you will. And one of the things that I learned from these guys is that try to be consistent. In other words, in everything you do, every day you come to work, if you try and do the same things over and over again in the same format, so long as it's positive, then it'll work well for you. Because once you get to a fire, there's way too many things that you have no control over that you have to try and achieve some control over. I remember I had an opportunity years ago to uh, go to the New York Giants locker room and there was a sign hanging there that said excellence. And it said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So I just thought that was very poignant, especially to the fire service, because if you can develop good habits, if you can develop consistency, it will help you to remain calm, to remain focused on the objective and then deal with the next thing. And, and I, I believe it starts with simple things like getting dressed. You know, I had an officer that used to say, and I'm, I'm a big one for cliches and sayings, if you haven't figured that already. But I, <laughs> I had an officer that used to say, dress for success. And that meant, you know what? At the time, we were wearing three-quarter rubber boots and coats and it, it, get dressed all the time. And those are things that if you do the same things all the time, you have control over those things so that when you pull up to that fire and, and everything's going to hell in a handbasket, you can then start to deal with those issues rather than worrying about whether your boots are up or your coats, you know, clipped or whether you, you got your gloves in your pocket or your mask is good or whatever it is. You know, the other term, I guess, is complacency kills, you know, so y you got to be you got to keep an edge, you know, and, and those guys, they had it. They they had that John Wayne swagger. They just moved <laughs> with confidence. They they uh they were able to just operate and deal with issues at hand. And I, and I believe it was through repetition and, and experience. And that's something we have a hard time achieving today in the fire service. And as the senior that's, man in, in Rescue 3, did you carry these lessons forward to the guys that came after you? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, of course, spent a lot of time in the back of the rig before I was able to get the seat. And that comes through seniority. But I tried to do that. You know, you, you kind of lead by example. But the, the, the unique thing about working in a rescue company is you're working with senior guys and they're experienced and they already have their act down pat. But working in a rescue company is an engine work and it's not truck work. So the hardest thing for a guy coming into the rescue company is to try and figure out the right place to be and the right thing to do at the right time or not. And, and that's, that's, that's a huge lesson there. And, and it, it humbles a lot of people and humility is a, is a, is an acquired trait that has to be achieved in order to be effective. In my opinion, as someone who spanned basically the two generations, the, the modern, and the old, how do today's guys, how do today's firefighters, in your opinion, compare with those with those great firefighters and the warriors? I may have led a very sheltered life working in a rescue company because, as I said, the, the members that, that came to the rescue company, that come to the rescue company are experienced. But that experience is still hard to come by. You know, they obviously strive to go to a rescue company uh, because of they're looking for more. Um, they've got that fire in their belly. And. I know when I went to the rescue company, you know, I was very fortunate. I was very young. I wasn't experienced. And, and what the guys, the senior guys told me was, you know what, if, if you've got the heart, we can teach you the rest. Yeah. And as these younger guys come, when I first went there, I made mistakes. I mean, I made mistakes when I left. You make mistakes at almost every fire you go to. But the opportunity was always there when I first went there that if, if I did something wrong or if I, I I felt as though I could do something better at the first fire. There was another fire that evening or that day, usually, or certainly on the next door you came in that you could you could correct it or get better at it. And the good news is there aren't a lot of fires. And the bad news is there aren't a lot of fires. So it, it makes it very hard for guys to to learn that. So uh, I know one of the things that I, I was always kind of big on and, and the job talks about it, but I guess maybe my company may have been a little bit different. We didn't always do it was. As we got an influx of new guys, when we went to a fire, as soon as we got the cylinders changed and, and we were squared away, we were going to sit down and we were going to talk about, you know, where you went and what you did. And and as I said, it's not engine work. It's not truck work. It's rescue work. So if you had the irons today, you know, maybe the guy on the roof had a tough job. And, and you, by listening to what everybody had to say, if you find yourself in that position, you might remember something that the guy said or did. Um, that'll help you tomorrow when, you know, what you had the roof or, or another position. And it, we, we just would kind of like go around the table. And it, it wasn't necessarily a critique, but it, w it was more of like, what did you do? What were you thinking? What what made you do that? Because uh, the work in the rescue company is extremely unique and, and, and frequently more often than not, you know, the chief officers are depending on us to, to fill the gaps. So it, it's uh, it's really you really have to focus on that learning. Sure take advantage of those opportunities because there's a lesson in every fire. It's great. And and all you're talking about are lessons that are being reinforced now by the lessons we've learned from the professional sports and the military critiquing, again, the, the need to, to, to understand what happened, to learn, to take that as a learning opportunity to grow. Uh, it's incredible that the more you look back on what you were taught, it just reflects so well on, on this current effort that we're engaged in. It's, just, it's absolutely phenomenal. Bobby, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and, and talk, uh, bring us towards the 9-11 period. 
I know that you had been hurt just prior to that. Could you could you speak a little about that? Yeah. <laughs> in uh, January of 2001, we were in the midst of a pretty heavy winter as far as snowfall up in Orange County where I live. And um, we had had a, a pretty warm day. And I, I, uh, I thought it would be a great idea to take some of the snow off of my roof. And uh, <laughs> I ended up falling off a ladder and, and uh, pretty severely breaking my ankle, which ended up requiring a couple of surgeries and, and some insertion of some hardware and an extensive rehabilitation period. And uh, I guess I, I never really thought of it until uh, my parish priest uh, said to me one day, hey, I was just talking about you to somebody. And I, I told him how falling off the ladder while you were cleaning your roof probably saved your life because you were supposed to be working on 9-11. But, you know, I was doing light duty on 9-11. I had just started light duty in July. Chief Ray Downey gave me an opportunity to not only rehab, but take care of the Urban Search and Rescue uh, New York Task Force One cash, uh, because the guy that had previously had the job had just recently retired. And so on 9-11, I was doing that job uh, over at Roosevelt Island and then going over to the fire department shops. So uh, I was working. I actually worked on September 10th, 24-hour uh, shift, because my my ability to walk and drive was marginal at best. A guy who also had worked, I'd worked with in Rescue 3, who also lived up here in Orange County, Nick Giordano, was also out at uh, Roosevelt Island Special Operations Command, and uh, he would drive me to and from uh, the island on, on the 24s, and uh, I was very much focused on on getting back to work. I remember when I fell off the ladder, I, I, I was in a tremendous amount of pain and, and I called my wife and she brought me the portable phone and, you know, I, I talked to the 911 operator and, uh, the volunteer fire department, uh, was dispatched. And the first guy that came here was Mickey Comboy. And I, I remember grabbing Mickey right by the collar. And I said to him, look, I'm hurt bad. I know I am. But I said, I don't need any cow doctors working on me. I said, I'm going back to rescue three. So we got to get the right doctor to fix me. And that that was really the only thing I was thinking about as I was laying in my driveway, believe it or not, <laughs> was going back to work. And, you know, I was fortunate. I, I was able, as I said, to get a couple of operations at the hospital for special surgery. I was confined to a hospital bed for three months. But my only focus was was to get back to rescue company three. But that would happen in due time. And, but the, the one thing that I, I remember, and I, I know he's been the subject of a couple of the, the podcasts here, was, you know, I, I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with John Vigiano over my career, both as a, a fire alarm dispatcher and a firefighter. And even before then, when I would come down to New York. And I always remember when John got cancer the first time I had gone to see him in the hospital. And one of the things he always said was, Every day I'm getting closer to going back to the firehouse. And that was, again, a cliche that I, I repeated to myself frequently to keep that focus, to keep that desire, to keep that drive. So on the day of 9-11, uh, Nick and I had just got off work. And a lot of the people, including Ray Downey, Joe Angelini, a lot of the guys that died that day, we had just left. And at special operations. And we were about halfway home when we heard the towers had collapsed and uh, we turned around and went back. And because I was in charge of the FEMA cash, there was a lot of scuttlebutt that they wanted the FEMA cash down there. So 
Uh, I went to Long Island City. I was able to get a, a couple of people also showed up there. We were able to commandeer some tractor trailers. We had them dump the, the boxes. We had the tractors hook up to uh, to the trailers that we had because the fire department didn't at the time own the vehicles and neither did the FEMA team to transport all the equipment. We had it all palletized on just trailers. So we, we got all of that done because the Long Island City Shops is in a commercial area. I sent the guy out, commandeered a couple of trucks. We were able to get a, some police escort. We convoyed it down and we set up the uh, what turned out to be the Special Operations Command command post. And we set up communications. We issued the radios. We ran it like a USAR component, which all the guys at SOC were used to. And, and we were able to establish accountability and 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 a focal point or a command post, if you will, for the special operations units. And that lasted for quite a long time through that 9-11 period. Once things began to settle down, you know, we were pretty fortunate in Rescue 3 where, where the families were pretty realistic about a lot of different things. And we had a lot of different situations, of course, but we didn't have a whole lot of issues. But it, it became apparent that it was time to start having services. So I took a detail back to the firehouse pretty much on a daily and nightly basis in order to coordinate the wakes, the funerals with the families, and then ultimately, you know, make sure that all the paperwork was done and the processing, because as you can imagine, or not, with the, you know, the 343 brothers that were killed, plus, you know, the police officers and the civilians and everything else, it was a, it was a lot of mass processing that was going on. So to walk the widows through a lot of this process was something that, you know, I, I kind of, got tasked with pretty much because I was light duty and it was, I, I knew a lot of them and it was, it was just easier, I guess, for me to do. It was something that I chose, but at the same time, you know, doing that in the firehouse, I didn't lose focus of the fact that that's where I wanted to be. I needed to get back. Yeah, that's a, an incredible story of resilience that, that not only were you, you taking care of the, the loved ones, uh, but also focused on your mission to get back. And, and your reference to, to Captain Vidge is just so perfect. Uh, if ever there was a man who, who just personified resilience, it was it was that amazing gentleman. And so when, when we continue out, you reflected back to, to basically 9-12, you know, the day after. And, and as Patty and I are sitting here today on West 38th Street, it feels very much like 9-12 in this city. We're here at about 5.30 in the evening on a Friday, and there is no one in the streets it's um, it, it it brings back a lot of very bad memories, but your reference there, uh, Bob, as we're sitting here now in the city, it feels very much like like nine twelve and another challenge for both the city, the department, and the nation. But again, I think uh, if any organization, any people you know, embody resilience, it's the FTNY, the city of New York, and uh, and this great nation. Talk about dealing with the lessons of loss. And I know this is a really difficult thing to, to broach. And if you don't want to go down there, it's perfectly fine. But with Leadership Under Fire, one of the avenues that I try and teach folks is, is about the resilience to come back and also to absorb loss and to stay in the fight. When you think about a unit like Rescue 3 that suffered so tremendously, you know, the, the unit coming back and, and, and staying in the fight, you yourself, even though you were hobbled on one foot, continue to, to stay in the fight. Could could you talk a little bit about like the, the feeling you get uh, watching this kind of effort now, especially with with some years gone past? Are the lessons that we could share to other organizations that may someday have to to go through what, what we have? I think the biggest thing is to stay focused. Uh, I mean, 
why did you sign up? Why did you take the test? It's because the fire department called you before sanitation, the police department, whatever. There's a reason all of us became firefighters. Some of us were, you know, obviously very focused. Some of us did it because maybe, you know, our fathers were on the job or somebody gave you the test. But when you raised your right hand, you took that oath. We have a mission. We have a, a, a responsibility to serve the public, to do the very best that we can to provide the very best service that we're capable of providing. And, and we're very fortunate in the New York City Fire Department that despite what a lot of people think, the fire department enables us to do that. We have things pretty good. I've had the good fortune of being exposed to a lot of fire departments around the world. And as bad as, as we might think, because, you know, we hate everything, but as bad as we might think it is, we really do have, have it pretty well off. And I, I think you have to kind of put it in, in a perspective that, you know, this is what I signed up for. You know what? Think about the day you became a probie. And, and how thrilled you were and, and how how serious you took the job. Well, you can't lose that. You know, I mean, again, that cliche, if you love what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. Well, I can tell you on a personal perspective, that's the way I always approach the job. I, I, I have absolutely no regrets. The job owes me nothing. And it, to be able to come back is a matter of refocusing. It's a matter of, of, of reminding yourself why you're here and what you're, you're doing and why you're doing it. I remember, maybe not so much with, with 9-11, but there was a time prior to that in the, in the 90s where there were a lot of line of duty deaths in the fire department citywide. And I remember working one night and we had buried John Clancy that day and that night, Jimmy Williams, Kevin Williams' brother, who Kevin was a lieutenant in Rescue 3, was killed in a fire in, in Rockaway. And I remember sitting in the firehouse, and we were all just sitting there almost in the dark, like scratching our heads, like, what is going on? How can this be happening over and over again? And, and you know, it starts to draw you down. And then I know from my own personal perspective, I just said, wait a minute, I, I love this job. I understand the risks. Things happen for a reason. And then I, I, the rationale that I used is I said, you know what? I drive an hour, an hour and 10 minutes to work and back and forth every tour I work. Statistically, I have a better chance of getting killed in a car accident, but I don't stop doing that. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to carry on because I love this job too much and I'm just going to you know, and, and another cliche that I have that I use, that's a, a catchphrase for a lot of different things in the firehouse. And the guys kid me because they use it a lot now, too, even just since I'm gone, is that everything seeks a level. So as low as things might be, at some point, you're going to have a high point and eventually things level off. And, and it's a matter of just staying consistent, staying focused, being patient. I can tell you that patience is something that's acquired, at least for me, because I had no patience. I had no patience for anything. And I was always going a million miles an hour trying to do a million different things. And when I got hurt, that was a real reality check for me. And I had to learn patience. 
and I had to listen to the doctors. I had to do what they told me to do. I had to listen to my body in order to reach my objective. And that all of these things come into play and they all kind of tie in together. So that was something that, that, that guys have to remember. They have to, they have to remember that, you know what, why are we here? You know, and if it really does bother you that much, then maybe, maybe you need some help or maybe you need to rethink what you're doing and how, whether it's maybe going through the counseling unit or, or finding somebody that can motivate you. But if you, if you take a big, long look at the picture, you'll probably figure it out and it'll seek a level. That's great, Bob. Hi, listeners. I want to take a moment to announce the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Course. The LDC consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The LUF advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, retired FDNY Lieutenant Danny Murphy of Rescue 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Early bird registration is available from February 1st through April 15th. Registration is limited to 18 leaders lodged on the farm and six lodged at nearby hotels, so act fast. For more information or to register, visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the events tab. Now, let's get back to the episode. And Bob, coming out of that period uh, post 9-11 and now you get back to Rescue 3 and you're driving your neighbor, Lieutenant Mickey Conboy, uh, who was featured in episode number three. What was it like uh, partnering up in the front seat of Rescue 3 with uh, Lieutenant Mickey Conboy? I could tell you that for both of us, and it, this may sound very corny, but it was almost like a dream come true <laughs> because we had the opportunity to work together again. I didn't know Mickey until I moved up here. And it turns out he only lived a few blocks away. And at the time he was in Atlanta 37 in the Bronx. And I, I ended up in, in uh, 42 engine. And subsequently we worked a couple months together in squad 41 and, and he went to rescue three in January of 1991. And I went to rescue three in February of 1991. And, we worked together until uh, until we got hurt as firemen, and ultimately towards towards the end, you know, he was a seated chauffeur and I was a seated chauffeur, and then he he got promoted while I was still out in, in 2002, and and we used to giggle and we we kid about you know the opportunity to work together. I mean, we would carpool together when he was a lieutenant in Squad 41. If if I was working the same tours as him, you know, we would carpool together and, you know, drop each other off at the firehouse and come back up. But when he came back to Rescue 3, that was like it for us. I mean, you know, it didn't take us long before we got back on, on track where, you know what, we, we were left hand, right hand, thinking about the same things or different things and complimenting each other. And I don't mean in a in a personal way, but complimenting each other to make sure that we were covering all the bases and and, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's when we were going to fires and emergencies. We just had a, a, a real good time. And, and our wives kid about, you know, the fact that I'm retired now and Mickey, you know, Mickey's uh, going to work alone, so to speak. You know, it's, <laughs> he lost his, his carpool buddy or his chauffeur. And, you know, but we, we had a, a tremendous amount of good times as firemen together and, and even more as, as an officer and, and a fireman. And it, and it goes a long way on a personal level, too. I mean, 
our wives are friends. Our kids grew up together. I know my wife is my best friend and my confidant. And, and I know Mickey's wife is the same with him. So we're fortunate that we have that stability in our home life that allows us to, to carry on and, and, and go to work and be focused on the work. Terrific. I mean, it's an incredible front seat to have two experienced guys like you. And you talk about focus and going to work. Lieutenant Convoy has talked about the Walton Avenue collapse where we lost uh, Howie and Michael. Could you talk about Walton Avenue and that collapse from your perspective? Yeah, sure. I had been back in Rescue Company 3 a few months, and the opportunity to go back there was was a gift, to, to say the very least. Um, you know, I, I was able to reach my objective. And the one thing I found when I went back was, although I had worked in that neighborhood in 42 Engine and then, of course, in Rescue Company 3, as I looked around the companies, I didn't know anybody. Things had changed. And I always had this this thought process in the back of my head. And, and it was certainly something I talked to my wife and kids about, uh, about going back to Rescue Company 3. Was I tempting fate? And the day of Walton Avenue, we pulled into the block and, and we, you know, it was obviously a, a good job, bad job, however you want to cl- classify it. And I remember we were walk- rescue was walking up to the command post and I had the irons that day. And I saw Mickey, he was working in squad 41 and he was going the other way. And I said to him, uh, you know, where are you going? And he says, they're sending us to the roof. I said, okay. And we got an assignment to go into the corner store would have been on the exposure four side of, of the actual 99 cent store. We had a very heavy smoke condition. I mean, we were, we were crawling along and, and Mickey gave a transmission. I'm pulling everybody off the roof. He said, you know, it, it's not good up here. And I crawled along the wall, which was up against where the 99 cent store was. And within seconds after Mickey gave that radio transmission, there was a tremendous rumble. And the only thing I could think of is they went through the roof, not knowing, of course, that the, the store had collapsed. The flooring in the store had collapsed into the basement. Being in a rescue company, our objective is to take care of the firemen, make sure things are, are going to go well. And of course, that's everybody's focus, but more so in the rescue company. So we managed to find our way out of the store. And I just I remember I, I, I made a right hand turn. I, I followed the sidewalk along and I, I went in and I had my tool out in front of me and I was kind of like duck walking. And I, I went right into the store and I went a few feet and I felt my hook drop off down. And I said, you know what? If guys are in there, that's where they are. So I, I kind of gingerly found my way around and ended up almost upside down head first in. And I came. the first guy I came across was John Grasso. And John, I go back to the point where I thought I didn't know anybody. I, I was a fireman with John when I was in 42. John was in 48. He was now a lieutenant. He was in 48 engine. He's now now a lieutenant. He was working that day in uh, in 44 truck. And then the guy next to him was Tommy Auer, who was the chief in the 17th battalion, who I was a fireman when I was in 217. He was in 230 engine in Brooklyn. So we knew each other from being firemen together. And strangely enough, you know, you think about, well, I don't know anybody here. And now here I am in, in probably one of the worst situations I found myself in at a fire. And, and I'm face to face with two guys that I know. And, and then, you know, subsequently buried next to them was, was Wayne Walters, who, you know, we, we managed to extract all three of them. And then, you know, at the same time, I called Mickey a couple of times on the radio and I said, you got to find a way into the basement. 
you know, Mickey and I had worked together for so long as firemen and, and certainly being friends, he knew my voice, I knew his. So we were able to, uh, you know, pretty much communicate in, in short order on what had to be done and where we needed to go. So I, I indicated to him that he needed to find a way to, to get to the basement because we didn't know how many of my other guys were trapped. Uh, of course, he and, and many other members worked for a long, long time to get Howie out. And, uh, you know, we were able to... Uh, to get, you know, Chief Hour and, and Lieutenant Grasso and, and Wayne Walters from 75 Engine out. And then uh, ultimately, you know, we worked on uncovering and, and removing Mike Riley. In a tough situation like that, how do you keep your focus? Like, how do you keep yourself from, again, from, from having your heart racing on you? When you, you're, t- you're tasked with trying to, to locate and then and to dig out firemen who are down, what are the things that you do uh, to keep yourself calm during a situation like that consciously or unconsciously breathing is very important uh trying to stay focused on what the objective is and also at the same time and being able to have a little bit of uh peripheral vision if you will of of what the big picture is what what else is going on here you know don't try not to get the tunnel vision um but stay focused on what you're doing i i think is is a very important thing i mean again I, i'll go back to the old you know the old guys the guys <laughs> The guys that uh, the senior guys that, that broke us in, they just oozed confidence and experience and, and the way you carry yourself. And that was something that I just I always aspired to and, and, and worked at, you know, looking at, at what you do, preparing yourself mentally before it happens. If you can, you know, try and go through scenarios. Yeah, buts and what ifs little things sometimes help in very bad situations to help keep you focused in order to reach your objective in order to to get the job done and and maybe experience in the rescue company uh, because that's what we're tasked to do being involved and fortunate to be involved in so many fires and emergencies that you know it's maybe it's an acquired trait i don't know (laughs) well it's a it's a it's a level of professionalism is what it is you know that again that another cliche you know, act like you've done this before. That's a matter of taking yourself back down, taking a look at what you got to do, and then move forward, you know. That's fantastic, Bob. And coming out of Walton Avenue, uh, the Special Operations Command of the FDNY actually built a mock-up of that Walton Avenue. Could you speak a little bit about that and the type of training that that is and what you're trying to instill in those rescue firefighters? Yeah. After... 9-11, there was a, a group of us within special operations that realized we were quickly losing a tremendous amount of experience. What we didn't lose on 9-11 itself, we were losing thereafter because of illnesses or injuries or, or it was just time. So we thought in an effort to, to capitalize on on sharing this information because experience is hard to come by, we all sat down and, and we we worked out scenarios. We worked out a week-long program and we were able to get grant money initially and now it's funded through the command to, to come up with real-life experiences and scenarios. We researched a lot of firefighter fatalities that became rescue jobs, if you will, where we built case studies and we were able to get through the job the ability to to have companies detailed for a week. So an officer and five guys or five firefighters from each squad, each rescue, whoever was coming out. And as a rule, we would get four companies. They would come out and they'd start the first day with whatever a, a case study. 
uh, of what had happened, whether it was uh, the Deutsche Bank fire, Walton Avenue. And, and we tried to keep them relevant, you know, the Father's Day fire. And we brought people in. We built the PowerPoints with the objectives. We brought people in that were at those fires. I mean, to this day, I, I was involved in just running it in the fall. And, and Captain Dennis Murphy, who was the captain of Squad 288 on the Father's Day fire. You know, he's retired. He was put out of the job at that fire. But we're able to bring Dennis back in and, and talk to the, the members of the command about what happened that day and what you need to be thinking about. And he would review the case study. And then Mickey does the same. Danny Murphy comes in, retired out of Rescue 2. He comes in and he talks about the Sclafani fire. And Mickey talks about Walton Avenue. And, and uh, we had uh, Captain Morris uh, Sr. come in and he would talk about Deutsche Bank and, and other guys. You know, we drew this experience. We still capitalize on it. They start the day with a case study. And, and over the course of the week, we put them through scenarios, whether it's, you know, firefighter removal, packaging, thermal imaging, large area search. The last day is the Walton Avenue scenario, where initially we had buildings at Fort Totten that we collapsed and then built props to replicate that. Because the Walton Avenue was a 99-cent store, one of the biggest things where I remember digging the, digging uh, the three guys out was the four guys out was it was like digging in the sand at the beach because there were just so many small things. So we were able to get you know cases and cases of if there is such a thing, but there was of expired water bottles and, and put them in V-shaped and, and lean to collapse areas so that as you're trying to extract these guys, it just became very difficult because you were, you were shoveling against the sand, if you will. It taught them discipline. It, it teaches them, you know, a, a, an attitude. It teaches them teamwork. You know, in some cases we see tremendous amounts of frustration, but there's a level of, of experience to be learned there too, because you know what? It's better to learn it in that type of a training scenario than in the in the real situation. So it, it, it's a tremendous, tremendous program. I mean, Mickey took over the lead a few years ago, and and uh, I assisted him. You know, the guys that participate in this, they all say it's it's like one of the best trainings they've ever had in the fire department. It's it's an unbelievable week. It's a real challenging week, especially for the guys in the command. Yeah, I've had the the, the fortune to observe it, and we actually. Um... For one of the Walton Avenue drills, we took Dr. Metcalf from Columbia. An interesting tie-in, like part of what makes the drill so special and effective is that it pushes guys just out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And that, and I'll actually put a little bit of a shameless plug here. In this upcoming week's uh, Senior Man Journal, will, number six will come out. We talk about the work of uh, Dr. Anders Ericsson and the book that he wrote, Peak, and the concept of deliberate practice, which is about pushing yourself just out of your comfort zone. Uh, to a point that is really, it, it's it's difficult, it doesn't feel good, but that's how we get better. When we train, we, we can't just engage in the same repetition all the time. We have to continue to, to up the ante, uh, to push ourselves to a new level because that's where growth is. And the Walton Avenue drill that you and Mickey have conceived is just absolutely fantastic. And um, Yeah, and, and, and just uh, to be clear, Jim, and, and I appreciate that, but there, there were a lot of other guys that were involved in this. Most of them are retired, and those were the guys that we tried to capitalize on. We just kind of ended up having it handed it to us by default. So, I mean, we were involved from the get-go, but, I mean, if I started naming the people from special <laughs> operations that were involved in this, I'd forget somebody. But there was a tremendous, tremendous team effort to put this together and, and a huge Huge focus. I mean, an unbelievable amount of experience that came together to put it together. Yeah, tr tremendous, um, uh, tr tremendous tribute to all those. 
Uh, Bob, I'm going to shift gears a little as we wrap up. Before we go, I'd like to ask just a couple more questions. What advice would you offer the young men and women who are beginning their careers now? Get into the job. Learn something new every day. Become a student of the job and focus on on fires. And, and that may sound maybe one way because we are responsible in the fire department for a lot of things. But we're, we're trained medically. And every couple of years we get recertified. We're trained in a lot of things. We're, we're required to do a lot of things. But the, the thing that, that, that hurts us, the thing that kills us, and the thing that we, we have been sworn to do is to protect the city from fire. And that is still our greatest challenge. And there's not a lot of, there is no recertification in firefighting. And firefighting is an art. It, it, it's, a, it's a technique. It's a skill. It's an acquired trait. And it, it only comes through paying attention to detail. The devil is in the details. And it's the little things. It, it's the technique. It, it's the things that we are taught in probie school and then taking it into real life. Stay focused on, on the job. You know, there's an opportunity to do a lot of things in very controlled situations. You know, the CFR runs, we're trained in CFR. For the most part, they're very controlled situations. They're very procedural Firefighting, not so much. Um, it's a very fast-paced, ever-changing, rapidly changing, dynamic environment uh, and set of circumstances that y you have to have every single bit of information, every single edge that you can possibly get. And the only way you can get that is, is to do a little something every day you come to work. Terrific advice, Bob. And, and one more from me. After such an illustrious career, what do you do next? That's uh, that's a pretty good question. I, I can tell you that the good news is the fire department consumed my life. <laughs> the bad news is uh, the fire department consumed my life and, and the job owes me nothing. But I owe my wife and my children some time right now. My wife put up with an awful lot for me. I lived for the job. I got involved in a lot of projects with the job. You know, I gave back to the job. It's time to give back to my family. My, my, my daughter and her husband just recently blessed us with a, a grandson. And uh, it, it's time. It's time to, to say, you know what? I had a good run. There's three ways to leave the job. The job owes me nothing, and I was able to get out healthy. I retired on my terms. As I said, I'm still healthy. I could have worked a couple more years. People told me, you know what? They dragged me out with my, my uh, you know, by my fingernails. <laughs> and, and I might have thought so, too. But as I sit back and I look, and maybe we do get a little wiser as, as we get older, I, I, I looked at... I looked at my family and I said, you know what? It's time. I mean, from a, a physical and mental perspective, I guess I've got a 19-year-old brain with a 62-year-old body. And I managed to find that balance and say, you know what? It's time to go. So I had a great run. What I'm going to do in the future is, you know what? I, the guys in the firehouse know I'm still around. If they need anything, um, I was involved in projects with thermal imaging and, and the radios and the job. So I still get phone calls from them about certain things, and I'm sure all of that will stop. I'm just going to enjoy life. I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, I had a great run. I have no regrets. Bob, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for talking with us today. And um, from one fireman to another, you are the standard uh, that all of us hope to, to one day be.
Thank you for listening to this episode. As promised, here's how you can sign up to receive the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. Visit leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address to join our newsletter. The journal is sent out every other Tuesday to share human performance content that provokes thought, generates discussion, and fosters self-improvement, both professionally and personally. I'm hopeful that my performance journal is a valuable resource for leaders who are in pursuit of optimal human performance. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.